Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Welcome, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we are going to explore the meaning and the power of mantra, sound and word. My guest is my good friend Devashish Banerjee. He is the Haridas Chowdhury Professor of Indian Philosophies and Culture at the California Institute of Integral Study, where he is also chair of the East-West Psychology Department. Devashish has written over 10 books having to do with uh, Sri Aurobindo, with the art and philosophy and poetry of the Bengali culture, including his own great-grandfather, Rabindranath Tagore, and his great-uncle, Rabindranath Tagore. Welcome, Devashish. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. I know in our previous interviews, we've touched upon syllables and mantras, especially when we talked about the chakras and all the, the petals on the chakras, each one expressing a different syllable on each of the chakras so that the uh, Indian system is incredibly intricate with, uh, I guess it would be fair to say, dozens if not hundreds of syllables, each with particular meanings. Yes, absolutely, Jeff. So that, that whole notion of syllables having power, vibrational impact on our astral bodies or subtle bodies, sukshma deha, the, the subtle body, uh, belongs to tantra. And it arises at a certain point in time. I'd say the earliest example of it comes from the Upanishads with the word Om. So the Om is a sacred syllable but it's a syllable that's supposed to really reverberate on its own. And, and you know, there's a whole Upanishad about it, about the four levels of, of the Om. Uh, the highest level is uh, something beyond our conception. It's, it's uh, beyond subject and object. And, uh, you know, so it's known as uh, the supreme station. One enters it only in the highest trance. And then the next level is a lesser degree of trance, uh, known as shushupti. Uh, so, and then the third level is what we call dream. And the fourth level is uh, our waking state. So these are the four states of the Om. And uh, later, Tantra is going to use this to talk about four levels of the mantra, of, of sound in general. So it's going to say that the highest power of sound is the supreme sound, paravak. And then there is the seeing word, pashyantivak. This is really the origin of the mantra. The third level is known as the uh, madhyama uh, vak, the, the intermediate word, which is closer to like something like the poetic word of human beings. Uh, a suggestive uh, kind of use of the word. And then we have the ordinary use, which is called Vaikhari Vak. Uh, so when we are talking about these syllables, the entire alphabet or syllabary 
of uh, the Indian uh, Devanagari, the, uh, the, 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 the language, Sanskrit language, is, is really a, a syllabary of uh, magical sounds, or magical yes, sounds, yes, sound power. Each one of them is a goddess in that sense. And so we are, you're probably familiar with Sir John Woodruff, Yes. Um, you know, one of the early um, explainers, or interpreters of tantric lore to, to the West. And he has a book called The Garland of Letters, mm -hmm. this, where he's really talking about one of the tantras. Uh, but the idea of the garland of letter letters connects with, uh, with Kali, who has a garland of skulls, uh, 108 skulls. So, in, in esoteric lore, each of these skulls is a seed sound. They're called bijas. And uh, akshara, the, even the common term for an alphabet in Sanskrit is akshara, which really means indestructible. So these are like the irreducible sounds which have some kind of resonance in the human system, the astral system. In other words, when we're having a conversation like like this, we're using our voices, we're communicating words, and yes. normally we think of uh, this is all about the meaning of the words exactly. uh, in in normal day to day conversation. But if if we probe a little more deeply, we would see that each sound that comes out of us carries with it a a, a subtle quality which is not related to the meaning of the words but is related to one might say the astral or the etheric or the uh, charismatic or the vibrational uh, impact that some people for example when they open their mouth it just resonates more yes absolutely jeff and we find that words uh, they carry a kind of a sound image if we uh, just go a little bit uh, deeper into our own imagination. When we are hearing words, there's a vibratory kind of image, a specific kind of effect uh, that each sound and word has uh, to the visual sense as well. So it's this kind of effect uh, that really works on us from syllables. And th these early uh, you know, creators of the bija mantras, uh, the, the seed sounds in tantra, they explored the power of these uh, particular syllables on the human system and their combinations. So this is like a, almost like a science of the atomics of sound. Uh, you have sound atoms, and when you combine them, you get sound molecules. And then those are the words. And those words also combine to form entire sentences. And in this sense, we see uh, the earliest use of the mantra is in the Rig Veda, where uh, the entire hymn is considered a mantra. Uh, but the sound value is still imminent in it. Each, each term, each phrase, each uh, entire hymn is resonating with this kind of a power to make us receptacles of higher energies of what they call the gods. And earlier you were referring to, I believe you used the word trance, different levels of trance. Yes, yes. With, meaning an altered state of consciousness exactly. that the syllable 
the sound has the power to induce in people. Indeed, Jeffrey. In fact, the word mantra, which you can break up, break up into man and thra. So that term thra, you can see that in the word trance. You can see it in transcend. Uh, trans, whatever uh, we, we say that it goes beyond. Mm -hmm. uh, it combines. So the, the sound syllable tra uh, in itself is something that in the Indo-European language still retains its sense of going beyond. Mm -hmm. And that's the way in which the term mantra is formed. Man uh, literally means mind. So going beyond the cognitive mind. And this relates to what you were saying about we ordinarily think that our words are specified. And that, that's the whole idea of the dictionary. And even more so of scientific language, where we need to agree upon the meanings of words. We need to fix the meaning, the, the uh, denotative sense of words. But poets use words differently. They use words in a suggestive manner. So the context is evoked in us. And the word may mean something very different from what it means in its more common sense. Uh, I think that's where we see the beginnings of the notion of mantra taking us beyond the cognitive power of the word. And people like Sri Aurobindo, who you mentioned, um, he has a book called Future Poetry. Uh, where he's saying that the power of mantra can be invoked in any language. And maybe our future poets should aim to become rishis or seers that channel the highest power of, of this kind of uh, potency of the word. You have shown me in some of our previous interviews that the idea of meditation probably goes back to the Indus Valley culture, even before the Vedas. You see, seals of pictures of people who appear to be in a meditative posture. And mantras are often associated with meditation. There are whole schools of meditation based on simply repeating the mantra as one meditates. When do you know, did mantras and meditation come together? Uh, you're quite right, Jeffrey. We do see figures that may be thought of as doing yoga in the Indus Valley, uh, but because we don't know what language they're using, we're not clear. It's speculative still as to what exactly is happening with these people. I have surmised that they're doing yoga, uh, for example, and that is related to some of these tantric centers, to transcendence, things like that. But uh, the word as a, a, a kind of a, a invoker or inciter of meditation uh, is more clearly seen in the Upanishads, uh, which is post-Vedic. Yeah. In the Vedas, you also have the notion of mantra. But that notion of mantra, um, I, I feel it is really something that is asking us to become rishis and and. Uh, and channels for the word. Uh, and this is also in Sri Aurobindo's thesis in his book, The Secret of the Veda. But we find in the Upanishads, it's much clearer uh, because they have uh, entire phrases that they hope, just we talked about the word Om, but they have combinations like Om Tat Sat. Now, this becomes Om Tat Sat means Om uh, that is true. Uh, 
or that truth. Now, the term tat, which is the basis of that in the Indo-European system, uh, also the basis of the term tatva in Sanskrit, which can literally be translated as thatness, mm. you know, which is like the specificity of something, irreducible specificity. Uh, this term is, in the Upanishads, used to mean uh, the transcendent reality that which can only be referred to in nameless terms, that. Right? And sat means truth. So, om that truth. Uh, so, holding, repeating this term uh, in, a, in a kind of a contemplative sense, uh, holding the meaning of that phrase, but at the same time letting its sound value permeate us, can take us into states of trance where we experience the erasure of the duality of subject and object and see the one reality uh, that that refers to. So this is the way in which meditation is um, you know, facilitated through the mantra in the Upanishads. Mm. These kind of statements are called Mahavakyas or great statement in the, in the Upanishads. And they are considered mantras of a more uh, meditative kind. You have another kind of mantra in, in the Upanishads of a meditative kind. They are paradoxes. And I believe they are what turn up later in, in the Japanese tradition as koans. Mm -hmm. Uh, these koans are, uh, are, are, they incite meditation as you contemplate them through the meaning. And you started by talking about sound and word. Yes. So this is the combination of sound and word. You are focusing on the meaning, but also the sound has its effect on you. And you come to a point where the paradox, uh, you can't answer it with your mind, but you experience it in a state that goes beyond the mind. If, if I understand you rightly, the, the use of the mantra really comes to fruition in the Upanishads, which occur after the teachings of the Buddha. No, actually the Upanishads begin uh, prior to the Buddha. Oh. Uh, Upanishads are considered to begin around the 8th century uh, before Christ. Oh, okay. Long before the Buddha. Yeah. The early Upanishads start even terms and the, the mantras like Om begin in the very first Upanishads. Mm -hmm. The Brihad Aranyaka and Chandogya Upanishad uh, considered to be 8th or 9th century BC. Uh, and then we find it going on past uh, the beginnings of Buddhism. Early Upanishads uh, spanned 8th century to about the 2nd century BC. And then they continue. There are Upanishads written all the way up to the 16th, 17th century CE, after Christ. I see. Uh, the Buddha comes somewhere uh, in the middle of that period. So, in, in, which would mean that the Buddha had already inherited the tradition of the use of mantra. Absolutely. Absolutely, he had. And uh, it's very likely that he used mantras in his teaching, uh, which is the thesis of the Vajrayana Buddhists, the Tantric Buddhists, who claim that the Buddha taught an esoteric version of his teaching as well that becomes available later. Uh, and that's very possible. He could very well have taught uh, mantra meditations uh, to his disciples mm -hmm. in an esoteric sense. Well, and which is 
brings up a whole other aspect of spiritual traditions in general, the idea that there's an exoteric teaching for, for the masses and then for an inner circle, a more esoteric teaching. Yes, Jeff, that's true uh, in the Indian tradition right from the Veda. Mm -hmm. This, In fact, this is one of the things that happens over time, an exoteric tradition tends to take over because more and more people follow it in a certain way, it becomes more religious. Uh, the esoteric tradition is preserved by a few initiates and then gradually uh, they lose their power. Uh, this uh, happened all the way back in the Veda, during the time of the Veda. So, in fact, this when we are talking about mantra, I would say that uh, the very essence of the Vedic uh, tradition, the esoteric meaning of the Vedas, is to prepare you to utter the mantra. Uh, from the very first hymn, uh, the term Rishi, which means seer, who is the uh, you know, the Vedas are considered to be unauthored in a sense like scriptures all over the world. You know, God comes and writes on a tablet. Mm -hmm. So, and then, so nobody can say, I wrote it. It's uh, you know, impersonal in that sense, extra human. So this is in that sense considered aporoshia, beyond, outside of the human. But it's paradoxically so, because humans uttered it, and that's acknowledged. It's the seers, the rishis, through whom these verses came. Uh, so if we look at these hymns, even the very early ones, the very first one, which is I came to fire, uh, uh, Agni, the fire god, um, it's, it's very second line is saying, oh, oh fire, adored by the ancient poets or seers, as well as by the modern ones, mm. you know, may you be a god who brings the gods here. So it's invoking the seer. And later, it's calling Agni itself a poet or, or, or a rishi. It's, it says, O Agni, O seer will, seer will, will, the will of the seer, Kavikratu, uh, and then it uses a very interesting term, satyas chitra shravastamaha, which means uh, the hearer of the image of truth. The hearer of the image of truth. So we get the sense that this non-dual truth is making itself available as sound. And that is being heard by the rishi or seer who has prepared himself or herself. I mean, there are female rishis as well in the Veda. The, 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 one of the most important hymns is by the goddess, uh, by, by the rishi, who is named after the word, mm. Vagambrini, the, the Umbrini of the word. And so uh, hearing the word, preparing oneself to hear the word, invoking the word through the power of fire, which is like an aspiration that prepares one to receive the image of truth in sound. Th that becomes the very meaning of the, 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 the hymns of the Veda. I'd say that the esoteric meaning of the Veda is how can we become uh, you know, channels for the word. Uh, the earliest Vedic rishis called the Angirasas, 
they are referred to as creating the world by the power of sound. Uh, these are humans, quasi quasi god, godlike humans. Uh, with their word, they broke the dark places and brought heaven to earth. So these kind of phrases, I think it's it's really a text, a, a body of text that's asking us to in, you know become channels of the word. It seems very reminiscent to me of, uh, I think it's the Gospel of John, which starts in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word, or the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Absolutely, absolutely. And just some time back, Jeff, we had a conversation about Sophia. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's the name of Sophia. Sophia is the divine Word, the goddess, who is the expression of the uh, unnameable divine who becomes form. And and in Greek, in the Gospel of John, it's uh, the word logos. Logos, yes. Logos. 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 Sophia could be seen as the embodiment of the logos, who gives birth to the logos. In, in the Christian tradition, uh, Christ is is born through. Uh, if you were talking about this, about the goddess and her power to give birth to God. Mm -hmm. And even in the Christian tradition, that's exactly what's happening. The Logos is born as the divine child. And, and of course, we derive from Logos, our word logic, yes. but I think in the ancient Greek, it meant much more than that. Much more than that. I think it meant an integral expression, an expression that includes not just logic, but the imminent intelligence of the cosmos itself. Our, our body has its intelligence. Our emotions have their intelligence, everything together, all the entire wisdom of, of the divine in the creation is contained in the word Logos. And, and one has something similar in the Hebrew Kabbalah, yes. where each letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Im embodied with meaning, and, and it's, it's sort of like a fractal pattern because every every sound has is a word and each word is composed of letters and each of those letters is another word and and so it go, it's like an infinite regress in, indeed jeffrey i think this is a very ancient kind of understanding that's why we find it in different traditions uh, the power of the word being sacred the word being divine the word being the divine you know i mean uh, the the word is coeval with god from this point of view you know just like the notion of the trinity the father the son and the holy holy ghost are coeval they're not one greater than the other they coexist from the very beginning so the word uh, in the tantric traditions they'd say that uh, there is no origin without the word even god uh, in his silence is really word that's taking some rest mm -hmm. the, the 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 silence of the word the not the silence from which the word was born but the word itself as silence well also it seems to me that when we think of it in in terms of language it's one of the factors that really seems to demarcate the human species. We are a species that has language, and we do everything that we do through language. We think through language. 
Indeed, Jeff. Now, of course, they're finding that, you know, animals, birds, they have codes mm -hmm. to their utterances. They, 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 their, uh, you know, so-called cries and sounds are much closer to language than we thought before. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's in interesting because I think we go back to a more primitive sense of the use of sound. Uh, the, the, in the human, that that sound becomes more uh, more uh, you know scientifically coded. Uh, in a way, we can use it as a science, the science of sound in yoga, for example, and then we can make it more, as you said, logical. Then we come to the science of language of grammar, uh, that in a way splits away from the science of sound, and I th I think. In, in trying to understand or look at uh, our early beginnings, primitive understanding of sound, we come much closer to the animals. Uh, in a sense, uh, Sri Aurobindo talks about some of this uh, in, a, in a kind of an essay called The Origins of Aryan Speech, where he's looking at uh, very early speech, primitive speech, and people who heard sounds uh, and converted them into these sound images. For example, the wolf uh, is called in early Sanskrit, in Vedic Sanskrit, called vrika. And vrika literally means the terror because the wolf tore, it, it attacked and tore its prey. Mm. So in the very sound of the word vrika, you can sense the tearing as a kind of a sound image. And these kinds of effects were really learned from the animals. So we see that the cries of animals contain an intelligence uh, which is not as codified as our language, as you said. We, we cross a threshold in our ability to bring the mind to bear mm. upon these sounds. But I think the origins go back to our animal existence. And it does seem to me in modern life we've lost uh, that connection with the origin. We're so accustomed to... Uh, using language the the way we do we forget how it must have been experienced by our earliest ancestors indeed uh, jeffrey and that's what uh, academic speech scientific speech takes us further and further away from our connection to these uh, early beginnings uh, and on the other hand poetic speech retains its link with this kind of usage uh, and that's why, you know, I say even in academics, in a place like California Institute of Integral Studies, where we are aiming at an integral understanding of reality, I say that people who have to write academically should keep in touch with their poetic selves. They should also know how to write poetry, because that's how uh, they overcome that kind of uh, fossilization and uh, enter into a, a, a deeper communion. Uh, with the power of the subjective. You know, people who understand poetry, for example, I mean, and this is true in modern times uh, as well, uh, we come across poetic speech from different traditions uh, and we try to understand it. And in that understanding, uh, sometimes we overcome our normal frame of understanding. We, we come to a completely new understanding. Uh, and I, th I think th that's part of the invitation of our times. Mm -hmm. 
Well, another aspect to mantra is the use of sacred languages like Sanskrit, perhaps Pali, perhaps Hebrew, or I think in the Catholic Church, Latin is now regarded as a sacred language by many. Yes. So these sacred languages, I think, uh, Jeffrey, they, they have retained that sense. Many of them are considered now only archaic languages. They're not spoken languages. Uh, because our speech has deviated so far from these languages, uh, Sanskrit, Latin, etc. There's a movement today to bring back Sanskrit as a spoken language, but it's not the same because we then turn it into common speech. But if we go back and look at the power of these of these sacred languages, uh, we see the ability to resonate. Uh, in us uh, to bring us experiences that are not common, mm -hmm. that 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 are that plumb the uh, uh, you know uncommon depths of the human, that take us into trance, or take us into states of uh, uh, you know union with other kinds of realities. There's also the use of syllables in magic, magical practice. The idea of magic words that. I mean, you even see it in in the Bible. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Yes, yes. It's a magic act. Mm -hmm. It's really that, 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 that very sentence is talking about an act of magic using the word. And I think mantra is that. Mantra is magic from that point of view. Even pujas that are done in India today use these sacred syllables, combinations of syllables. They use sentences taken from the Upanishads, like the one we discussed. They use entire hymns from uh, the Veda. Uh, they use uh, mantras that are for visualization of the gods or goddesses that are being invoked. And the whole idea of this kind of, you know, with sent these, these ritual actions, at the center of which is the utterance of these words, is to actually bring that particular deity into material form, bring it into the, uh, the, you know, the image and bring it into the environment so that the people can receive that energy. So it is an act of magic. I'm under the impression, though, that magic won't work without what I would call focused intention. That if, if you just repeat magic words, abracadabra, uh, they have almost no impact. But if you repeat those words with intense concentration, I, there are many examples of people accomplishing things that would be regarded as miraculous. You're absolutely right, uh, Jeffrey. That's why in, even in these pujas, um, we talked a little bit about the chakras, and this, you started with that, talking yes. about the sound syllables that are written into every chakra. Yes. So the invoker, the person who will state the mantras, has to first start by getting into their own inner system and becoming, in a sense, using the, using the, the mantras, the syllables, to come into contact with these higher forces and then focus their intent in these mantras or through these mantras to bring it into the environment or to the image. 
So there is a transmission that's taking place. And you're right, the transmission can't take place unless there is an experience that goes behind it and a focusing of that experience through will. Mm-hmm. This is the idea of the seer will that, uh, you know, in the Veda, uh, kavikratu, which means the will of the seer. So that is, in essence, coming into union with that power through the word and then mobilizing it with the will. It seems to me it starts inwardly. It starts long before one gets to the vocal cords. Yes, indeed. Indeed. That's why it it starts out of meditation and it breeds meditation. Mm-hmm. Yes. In this in these pujas, for example, mm-hmm. the idea is to rise to what they call the thousand petal lotus. Yeah. And from that center to utter the words. Now, I don't know how many priests can do that. But, you know, we have examples in, in the mystic lore of even modern India. Uh, people like Sri Ramakrishna of, of Calcutta, uh, of the middle and late 19th century, uh, who came in as a priest of, of the temple of Kali. And his invocations to Kali were of this kind. He actually uh, invoked her from a center of complete union, non-dual union, where he brought her to life uh, in the image or images that he worshipped. In some sense, he was a magician. He had disciples who traveled around the world and uh, and spread the uh, philosophy of Vedanta. It really, Vedanta goes back to Ramakrishna, as I understand. Absolutely. Our, our modern ideas of Vedanta, yoga, etc. are largely indebted to his primary disciple, Vivekananda. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vivekananda spread the uh, philosophy of these things. But York, I, I would agree with you that Ramakrishna was a, a magician of the highest kind, a magus. That's where we get, once again, magic words. Uh, the, the funny thing is you could say abracadabra. <laughs> Nothing will happen. But if you say it with intention, we, we don't know what might happen. True, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Debashish Banerjee, once again, a delightful conversation, a pleasure to share time with you and explore this most intimate power of every human being, the power to use language to accomplish things in in the world, including raising one's own awareness. Thank you, Jeffrey. I, I enjoyed this conversation very much. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.